This is Polly Morgan, and you're listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey Ben, how you doing? I'm doing extra swell. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm glad you are extra swell again. I'm going to publicly apologize for being late to our meeting today. Late to our wraps. There's no reason, no reason anyone needs to know that. That's that's just between uh, you and me and Ben Katz. Well, not anymore. Now it's uh, now it's a matter of public record how sorry I am. <laughs> so so Ben, who's on the show today? Amazing. We have Polly Morgan, who shot the number one movie last week in the country, and really the first big movie to bring us back from the pandemic, A Quiet Place 2. She's definitely uh, more than up and coming. Like I'd say that, you know, with this, she's she's in the big leagues now. Awesome. So, hey, Ben, you're a producer, director, and part-time co-host of the Cinematography Podcast. <laughs> I am. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and you are the proprietor of Hot Rod Cameras. What of it? I'm bringing this up here just because I'm often told that we should remind people who we are and what we do. But beyond all that, beyond the bare statistical information about you and I and our and how we, we make a living, you know, Monday through Friday, I think it's important to also point out that you and I are both film school graduates. We're also lovers mm-hmm. of movies. Yep. You have been in this career now 20 plus years, as I have been in this, this career 20 plus years. We've both Oof. made movies. We've made short films. We've uh, made uh, feature length films. We've been involved yes. in, as uh, in about every capacity one can with production. You worked in the art department for a long time. I worked in the art department. I worked in camera. I, I've never worked in wardrobe. I just want to be clear. Uh, well, it's kind of a lie. I was a PA for wardrobe doing returns for one day on a an Olsen Twins uh, TV series, but that was about it. But, uh, other than that, I've never worked in... That's the only department I've never worked in. You worked in, in, in makeup. You've worked in... Uh, I mean, yes. yeah. You, uh, have you ever done any G&E work? You ever, you know, move, moved heavy well, stands? Well, I, I mean, uh, professionally, no. But I did go to an all-technical film school at uh, Valencia Community College, now Valencia College, and I was a gaffer on a lot of the projects that we did. And we had, you know, a five-ton grip truck. We had like 12K lights and crank evader stands and a Crawford generator and distro and all that stuff. And I had to learn all that stuff. And I also completely forgot all of it because it was so long ago. <laughs> uh, I had some work as a gaffer for a while, including I worked on an MTV series, which originally was entitled, and our listeners might enjoy this, originally entitled Hot Chicks with Douchebags, based on a book of mm. the same name. Then it became uh, Hot Chicks with Bad Boys. And it eventually became a show called is she really going out with him? The View. It eventually was called The View. What? It would have been it great. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, but is she really going out with him is exactly about as good as, as you think it you, you think it might be. So it was not, mm. not, not a great show. Anyway, hey, I'm talking about all this because we have a little bit of credibility, actually, of like knowing what we're talking about here. And uh, it had been pointed out to me that we're just two dudes on the internet. And if we don't actually tell people like you know what our background is or how much time we've you know pulled cable or wrapped bnc or written things or done things then then no one would know so it's you know you'd have to go to well, our imdb I'll also and, say that yeah even when i was a makeup artist i some of the movies i worked on were so low budget that i ended up wrapping up a lot of cables and you know folding
folding up a lot of stands and putting them back on the truck because it was always an all hands on deck kind of situation. I think that's a lot of people's early days for jobs. And you, you suddenly realize that there's real reasons that there's hierarchy and better budgets and more people and all that, because it makes your, your life so much better when you're, when you're working. I remember one day I was working on this movie that will remain nameless, but it's not a good movie. And uh, I was a makeup artist on it. And the producer was yelling at me because I wasn't folding up the C-stands fast enough. <laughs> because that's totally your job. Yeah. <laughs> I literally said to him, if I were to like power through this and break my finger, you're out of makeup artist. And uh, I didn't like being the lay down the law kind of guy. I, I, I never have been that kind of person. But yeah, on, on some of those things where it's like it was absolutely expected. Flip side, I'll tell you another story. Hmm. This is practically a war story. I was working on a movie and I will tell you the title of this movie. It's called Raw Justice and it was released on uh, VHS and DVD uh, directed by David A. Pryor. And uh, they were filming a sex scene with David Keith and Pamela Anderson in a condemned building, and they did not have a permit to do so. Uh-oh. And it was fully lit. Carlos Gonzalez, who we've had on the show, was shooting it. Fully lit. Everything was happening, and the authorities showed up, which I think is really rare for David in Mobile, Alabama, because he had that whole city wrapped around his finger. But the authorities showed up and basically shut down the set because we weren't allowed to be in there filming the sex scene. And so basically the producer came out and said, okay, everybody, we got to load up the trucks. And so like I went and grabbed two C-stands. I was the assistant makeup artist on this movie. I grabbed two C-stands and was marching out with them. And Whit Norris, the sound mixer, who is an extremely prolific sound mixer, still works a lot today on humongous stuff. Whit was like, Ben, slow walk this stuff. Like, don't take two of them. Just take one and walk really slowly. Like, they're trying to finish the scene in there. And uh, they did finish the scene, and it is in the film. All right. So. <laughs> hey, let's talk about what's going on in the world of movies right now, or at least the big story in the world of movies. AMC, definitely the nation's largest movie chain, its stock price, and I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the show, but its stock price has gone from something very modest up to something quite impressive. It's, uh, it's jumped 1,100% since January. And in the past, like, you know, week or so, all the people out there on Wall Street, the traditional Wall Street investors, the, you know, the large qualified investors have been shorting AMC and retail customers like GameStop, uh, while the retail investors have Uh, funny, you should mention GameStop about this, but go on. Yeah. Have caused those investors to lose 4.53 billion Four point yeah, five three basically, billion dollars. It's, it's basically the revenge of Reddit. Like it's Redditors going on and strategizing companies that they can do. It's not really pump and dump. I mean, it sounds like pump and dump where where you pump up the stock price and then sell it off. But GameStop is actually still pretty high. GameStop's and, high. And, AMC is doing really well. They're- and I, I sort of wonder. Like I, I was listening to a podcast that was asking the question: Is this just legacy media? Because like GameStop, most people don't buy their video games from GameStop, they're able to get them online. And obviously you and I both hope that the movie theater experience comes back and comes back strong. But you know, the last year has not been great business for the movie theaters and AMC being the biggest chain, but you know, Pacific and Arclight went 
out of business, you know, like went, went bankrupt. So I thought it was interesting that that happened. Uh, a total side note, I heard an interview with Tim League, the owner of Alamo Draft House. And Alamo Draft House went into kind of a reorganization kind of bankruptcy during the pandemic. And I think for my money, Alamo Draft House has the best movie theaters of all time ever anywhere. Strong but words. They went into reorganization and now coming out of the pandemic, they are resurging uh, without the help of a bunch of dorkwad Redditors. They're surging to the point where they're planning to expand already. And the day they opened, Quiet Place 2, every every screening was completely sold out back to back to back all day long. Like you people could remember, not though, wait the, to get back sell, in the theater. The sellouts are not the same as they used to be because they have a lot of spacing and distancing going in. So it's probably only about 25% of the seats that actually make it sold out. Still... Alamo Drafthouse is planning an expansion now, and uh, I, I can think of no better theater chain to do it. But the AMC thing, I think, is interesting because it really, as far as I know, and I would love for someone to explain otherwise to me, this is basically Redditors who are kind of in a weird horse race to pump up stocks. And again, I, I'm not saying it's pump and dump. I'm not saying that there's anything nefarious about it, but it really is screwing over hedge fund managers, and uh, I have a hard time caring about those people. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who did buy AMC. I bought some AMC way back when it was 11 bucks or something like that. And so the fact that it's up to 60 now, granted, I don't have hundreds of these shares, so it's it doesn't you know change my life. But I I wanted to try to support AMC and a few other movie related stocks that weren't doing so well some months ago. And now it's kind of a, it's really an interesting thing. I mean, it's like you could buy yourself a new MacBook if you if you bought enough of this stuff. And I think there's a whole bunch of people on Reddit, a whole bunch of people out there who are the retail part-time small potato investor uh, as well as though there's some oh god the whole thing about reddit is uh, they've got this forum that is filled with people who are you know yoloing or you only live once who are putting huge money into some of this but they're actually making some really incredible short-term gains because you got to realize that it went from 11 to nearly 60 dollars today and that's a massive increase in the last month in fact really that just all the last week well, and unlike something like Dogecoin, um, this is a, you know, if you invest in AMC theaters, like that's going to go to paying salaries of people who work in a real business. It's not just betting on a, on a theoretical weird cryptocurrency. Like this is real stock in a real company that does, that performs a real service. And it's a service that you and I both find, uh, you know, important enough to have dedicated our entire lives to working in that industry. It's really interesting to see how retail investors are changing the landscape for Wall Street right now. I kind of can't wait to see what happens next. I think that we could be setting ourselves up for some big uh, calamity, but if investors decide that they want to keep making money off of shorting, and uh, and the other side of the table, essentially, but which I'm saying uh, retail investors, maybe not the same as institutional investors, want to combat them, they can make a lot of money if they organize and decide to do it. It's, you know, Wall Street used to... Uh, used to complain, uh, well, certainly around GameStop, they complained, but I haven't heard the same complaints now this time about AMC. I think they know what they're in for, and they're just losing money, which is kind of interesting. I honestly feel like these people can't really do much worse than uh, the big-time professionals who have tanked the stock market so many times over the years. So, you know, I, 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 again, I'm happy that this is going into a film-related thing and not, not a cryptocurrency, which is basically just... Uh, 
yet another shared delusion. <laughs> like, <laughs> we can all get rich off of the shared delusion, but it's a delusion. It's not an actual thing. They, they have a name for, for what a lot of this stuff is, which is a legal fiction. And there are so many things that are legal fictions, including, like, states and countries and money in general and all the yeah. other sort of things that we, we put together. But really, that's how our society is built. Our society is built on these legal fictions, these these things that we say exist, even though the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, it, it only exists on, on paper and in a, in a, uh, a legal standpoint. And from all of us agreeing that, you know what, this shiny, this shiny piece of metal is going to be worth a certain amount of money or a certain amount of anything. Well, for me, so. for me, at least movie theaters are worth uh, the investment. So uh, I, I hope this keeps going. Anyway, I, I think that uh, we should talk about who our guest is today. Polly Morgan, ASC, you know, a DP behind A Quiet Place 2, amongst many other things. Yep. But but yeah, yeah, that's who's on the show. Yeah. Little, little movie like the number one movie last week, uh, Quiet Place 2, which we both saw. Yeah. And uh, I, I went to a, a screening of it and I found it uh, just brilliant and effective. And the visual construction of it was just amazing. I, lo- I love the first Quiet Place, which was shot by Shalotta Bruce Christensen. So it was good to to talk to Polly and kind of talk about the basic construction of, of a movie like this, where it really is a sensory experience. You know, it's like a, a movie where it's like you're hyper aware of what you're looking at and what you're hearing. And uh, they do some just amazing, amazing work to uh, hold your attention. So without further ado, let's uh, let's go into the interview with Polly Morgan. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. So we are here today with Polly Morgan. Polly is uh, talking to us from New Orleans, correct? Yes, that's right. That's awesome. Are, are you on a shoot? I am. I'm filming a, a film, which is also a book called Where the Crawdads Sing which is a best-selling novel and um yeah i've been down here since february so nearly oh, wow. we're, we're halfway through the shoot well uh, and we might talk about how COVID has impacted that later but we're here first and foremost to talk about a quiet place part two and i told you off mic that uh we had interviewed shalotta bruce christensen who shot a quiet place the first quiet place and then like a month later it came out so i didn't even know about a quiet place or that she'd done it when we were interviewing her and i was like damn it because i was really excited you know when i saw it and just you know it's, it, it's such an interesting uh conceit for a horror movie for any movie so uh, kind of just to start off i always wonder when someone shoots a part two of something that had a very successful part one what kind of communication did you have with the team that did part one or were you taking it more or less in your own direction you know this movie doesn't need to look exactly like a quiet place part one because spoiler alert it doesn't really take place in the same exact place and in in a lot of ways it opens up the world and shows us things we didn't see in the first one so how much of a conversation did you have with Shalada or you know the director or whatever about how to create continuity or was that even an important thing yeah well um what's interesting about part two is it opens with a prologue which is day one of when the creatures actually first attacked but once that prologue finishes you know we cut back to where the first movie left off and we find the abbott family back in their farmhouse basement so for me it was really important to reference charlotte's work and make sure that, especially in the initial parts of the film, there was a really cohesive feel and that I was kind of directly continuing on her style, so to speak, just because, you know, I was I was pretty aware that when the second movie was going to be released that they might very well, like, do a double bill out in the theatre and people would watch one and two back to back. And I know oh. that if I was a viewer watching these two films, I didn't want to be pulled out of the story by suddenly the second one looking 
too different. So that was kind of my intention going in. And, you know, obviously each DP is an individual and they have their own style and, and things that they like. So it was definitely my intention to do that. I think obviously as the Abbott family kind of leave the farmhouse and they, they go on their adventure, you know, my style just inherently took over. But it was important for me to kind of keep the vision cohesive. And, um, you know, I thought Charlotte did such a beautiful, beautiful job on the first movie. So it was nerve wracking to try and do as good a job as she did. <laughs> Yeah, she's got big shoes to fill. Well, I think you did an amazing job, and uh, I, I was able to see the the film at a at a press screening uh, about a week or so ago, and it it looks amazing on the big screen, and it made me remember the in, when when seeing the original one, how like a movie like this that kind of has you on the edge of your seat about sound makes it, it kind of just raises all your senses so you're also watching things very carefully because you don't you know people are trying to be quiet because the noise brings about the creatures and i kind of want to know like how did you go about kind of architecting uh, the approach the style to kind of hold our our senses like i i almost it's such a suspenseful film i feel like my senses are kind of being held hostage for a lot of it and then overwhelmed how much of that was baked into uh, your approach to the work So from the very beginning, the way that John and I talked about how to tell the story was obviously to just make it as immersive as possible and keep it subjective to the character's experience. And I think, you know, in the first one, a lot of that was achieved by sort of a handheld approach that Charlotte did, you know, really close and wide behind Regan's ear. You know, we really were close with her and we kind of experienced that sense of, you know, loss of hearing and sound with her. And it was just very immersive. And, you know, one of the reasons I think the movie is so tense is because you're really just with these characters and you're on the edge of the seat with them. And so with this film, even though John wanted to kind of like, he wanted to change the feel a little bit just because of how the movie kind of expands. He wanted to expand the feel of the camera. So he did want to repeat the same stuff but he wanted to change it but yet also make it feel subjective and the way we did it on the second movie was we would do these long takes that would start wide and then push into a close-up or they would start wide and then they would be choreographed with the action and they would basically keep the character in jeopardy and what was causing the jeopardy in the same frame so what i mean by that is it was never the intention to cut away to the creature or cut away to what the source of danger was or anything like that it was more sort of creating this language that really contained the danger in the frame with those people that were in danger and i think that in itself kind of like there's no escape you know, you can't just take a breath yeah. with, the, with the rhythm of the editing. It's like it's all happening at once. And I think that was kind of our way into into keep it as sort of immersive as possible. Yeah. And, and I haven't gone back and watched the first one, but I don't remember the first one being full of wonders like this one has. Like it really did have a lot of uh, kind of deep choreography. Can you talk about like what's the process of creating those those kind of expansive wonders? Because there's some where you're it, uh, I would almost compare it to uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, where you're like with these characters for so long that as an audience member, even if I'm not aware of the editing, I kind of have a sense of like, we haven't cut to anything for a minute there must be danger like there's like something something's not right and the choreography of the camera and and the actors is like 
so precise, but doesn't it doesn't feel contrived in any way. It, it feels like we're just there with them. How did you go about building that? Was that something where John Krasinski would come in with kind of a plot of where the blocking was, or did you work it out with him, or how, how did that go? Well, you know, it's interesting because every single movie that I make or project that I work on is prepped in a different way. And the way that John and I worked was we got to have a couple of weeks together in New York City prepping before we then went up to Buffalo, which is where we shot the movie. And so we had a couple of weeks where we were able to sit together in the office and look at some movies and just talk about the style of the camera and the language and the references. And Children of Men was definitely a reference, especially for this sort of shot in day one where we're with the characters inside of the car that whole opening prologue is just like again edge of your seat and so precise in in its execution thank you i mean you know we just talked about the rhythm of the film you know the beginning when he's in the grocery store and how he walks to the baseball field we wanted to do those in just one simple shot just long takes that would just take him from a to b and we just wanted the pace to be slow and kind of build it up and i think that john is a really bold filmmaker and i think he has a strong vision in his head even reading the script you could sort of imagine how he wanted it to be shot just because of how descriptive it was on the page and so we had just these conversations about rhythm and pacing and how much coverage we needed and how much we didn't and so often you know a scene would be written in the script and we would only shoot it in one shot and not all directors are willing to do that they might be nervous about needing to do a close-up or cover themselves in the editing room, but John was very confident that we only needed to do one shot here and there or, or in whatever scene we were doing. And um, so that's how we did it. And, you know, it was just kind of like this push and pull that we wanted to do with the viewers' emotions to kind of keep them on the edge of the seat and in different parts of the movie, how we would do that, either with sort of a slow, medolic camera or sort of a fast-paced cutty camera because I think the movie of course it is a horror movie it's a genre movie but also at its heart it's a family drama about this mother and her children and I think where there's so much action in this one compared to the first one we definitely wanted to make sure that we still kept it grounded and just really pull it back and be with these people and sort of understand their experience and what their relationships are with each other. Uh, Do you like to operate your own camera or do you work with other operators? You know, I love to operate. It's one of my most favorite things to do. And for this movie, even though initially I I had said that I was going to operate, as we sort of came down to it, I was going to do the B camera and Matt Moratti that did A camera. You know, I was just going to come in and just grab a camera when, when we needed one. But as I sort of like got deeper into prep, I just realized that A, I'm not usually someone that uses a B camera that much. I kind of like to shoot with single <clears throat> camera. And B, I just wanted to sort of be by John's side and, and not be distracted by having to operate a camera. So, you know, I've had really good fortune of working with some really fabulous operators who, although I love to operate, I'm in no way the same caliber as they are and there were so many different tools that we used to tell the story whether it was you know an electric car with a mini telescoping crane or a huge techno crane or you know a rickshaw and a steady cam or you know there were many different tools that we employed and Matt was able to just do great work and, and just nail it in the first take and so that's what we were after. 
Um, and you know, it was really just, it was a dance of like the camera, but there was stunts and special effects and visual effects and everything was really orchestrated. And because mm -hmm. of the camera language of that, we did have these sweeping shots that started wide and ended close. And, you know, to be able to step back and let Matt execute sort of the conceit of the shot and be able to watch him work so brilliantly and also like focus on the lighting was, it just worked really well. So I used to ask a question that started out every interview, and I, and I kind of ditched it, but I'm going to briefly resurrect it. I had a theory based on a misunderstanding that a cinematographer friend of mine had told me that most DPs either started when they read a script, they would like see it in lighting or they would see it in composition. And in looking at your work, I'm just interested to know when you read a script, what do you see exactly? Like, what's the first thing that occurs to you? You know, I just can't help but when I read a script for the first time, the words just come out at me and I just imagine the film unfolding. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not framing or lighting. I mean, I think lighting is a stronger, a stronger feeling that definitely comes into, into my imagination. Like, the framing comes a little bit later. But, you know, I'm, I'm dyslexic. And when I was... Um, so being dyslexic, I think that visuals have always just been a very powerful medium for me mm -hmm. and you know I studied art history and I did art and I did photography and it was just my way of being able to communicate so you know when I read a script the whole words they just come to come to life in in my mind and sometimes those original ideas that I have when I first read it they do sometimes come to life in the final film um, and those mo moments are always really exciting to me because they obviously just get finessed and they go through some kind of process but yeah it just you know it just comes to me pretty much as, as I just read it again and again. I got brought up in a household where art history was loved and studied by my my family members and I think that throughout my life I just was exposed to so many painters and artists and I think that subconsciously it just like got immersed into my into my soul and so you know these images that come into my mind when I read a script you know it's almost like I'm seeing paintings because I've seen so many paintings throughout my life and I and I love art so I think that's where I kind of draw my inspiration from and for the longest time I as I kind of started off in my career and kind of how I, as I learned to light and move a camera, I was able to execute the images in my mind a lot better. But when I first started out, you know, I would have these ideas, but I couldn't execute them. You know, mm -hmm. and I think that's the funny thing about cinematography. When you're first starting out and you're doing low budget or no budget short films, and then you're getting into the same level of um, independent films and you slowly grow into to more and more bigger budgets I think it becomes easier because you have people there to help your ideas come to life you know you've got more time you've got more tools you've got more talented craftspeople working with you but when you're first starting out you know you just have to find a way to like execute the images in your mind with yeah. very little and very little help so it's, that's why I think it's a challenging career to get into because you know you really it's the hardest that it will ever be right at the at the beginning so, yeah, I just think it's like, and maybe it's the Flemish artists, you know, where they would always have single source lighting through a window, you know, and so the lighting on um, their characters' faces would be really modeled and then there would be fall yeah. off because it was just single source. And that's the kind of lighting that I gravitate towards. And, um, you know, that's probably what still inspires me today. 
Are there any specific painters? I know you said Flemish painters, but are there specific ones that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I suppose it, so many cinematographers will say this as well, but, you know, uh, painters like Rembrandt or Caravaggio, <clears throat> Van Dyck, you know, lots of Renaissance painters that they just sort of got away from the early kind of flatter tile type of painting and just really were able to immerse a more sort of 3D and emotive feeling to their, to their works. So, uh, well, let, let's go back into your background, and I always want to know, like, what was the moment in your life that you realized cinematography was a thing and that it was a thing you might want to pursue? Yeah, I mean, I w just love watching movies as I was a child, um, and I grew up in a, an extremely remote location in the South Downs of the UK. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to a film crew when I was a teenager, a feature documentary crew came down and used our farmhouse as base camp. And, um, oh, wow. you know, I got to see a film crew in action. I got to see, you know, the camera and the crane and, and um, everybody was lovely and they, they let me look through the camera. And, you know, as a young girl from like the countryside in the UK back in the, you know, late 80s, I had no idea how movies were made. Um, I didn't know what a mm -hmm. DP was. There was no internet. I didn't have any film books. It was just... I loved watching movies. I loved, you know, the immersive nature of them. And so when I got to see a film crew at work and I kind of started to very basically understand how films came together, I just knew that that's, that's where my career was going to go. And then I went to university in Leeds and did a Bachelor of Arts degree in communication. And just, I, you know, step by step by step, I just kind of tried to do whatever I could to get into the business because I didn't know anybody that was in film or TV when I was young. And you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to AFI, correct? I did, yeah. So after I finished university in the UK, I went to London and started working as a PA. And, you know, that led me to become a camera assistant. And I was assisting a graduate of AFI, Harris Ambalukas. And uh, he saw that I was shooting when I wasn't working and doing whatever I could to, to try and DP. And he recommended that I, uh, I come to AFI. So, yeah, I came out to L.A. And um, I was also very fortunate that in between my first and my second year, I was so broke that I needed to find work. And um, I basically researched all the different movies that were going into production so that I could try and get work on a, on a film. And I found out that Wally Fister was, was going to be prepping Inception. And so in a roundabout way, I found his email and I emailed him. Oh, and wow. um, because I had uh, worked on Batman Begins, second unit, and because he knew Harris and he'd gone to AFI and also because I think I was British and I could go work there, he asked me to come and meet him. And then, you know, he offered me the job. So that happened in between my first and second year of AFI. And it was just such an amazing education to kind of round out my time at the Film Institute because coming from camera, I was very comfortable with the camera and, and operating and framing. And, you know, I knew all the technology to do with that. But I, even though I could see the images of the lighting that I wanted to achieve in my mind, I had no idea how to pull it off. And I think being next to Wally for 95 days and doing lighting diagrams and taking photos and going to dailies with him, it was oh, wow. the most priceless you know, learning experience. Yeah, of sounds like a masterclass. And on that film of all films, too, such a visionary film. Yeah. And, you know, he he lights so well. He lights so quickly. It was really something that I think I owe a lot to for sort of how my style has developed. What would you credit as like the the project that kind of 
got you over the hump to the point where you were like, okay, I have a career now. I do this for a living now. Well, you know, it's interesting because being a cinematographer is a bit of a roller coaster. You know, it's uh, mm. it's not for the faint of heart. So um, <laughs> I'm not even sure what project that was. And I, I mean, if I'm totally honest, it probably wasn't until Legion that that happened. And I didn't shoot Legion until 2017. And I went to AFI in 2008. I graduated 2010. Legion was seven years after that. And I did a lot of work, but, you know, one of the first independent movies I did out of AFI was The Truth About Emmanuel, and that went to Sundance. Um, and I also did, like, a short film for the release of the Canon C300. And so there was lots of, you know, successes in that way that something I worked on would be, would be a big success, and people would say to me, oh, you're on fire, you know, wow, this is so exciting for you. And then I wouldn't work again for, like, three months or four months. So... It's one of those things where I think as a DP, especially DP starting out, it's like you have the highs and then, you know, maybe there's going to be a dip and then something else will come along and then maybe there'll be a dip. And for me, that's why it was so fortunate that I could bounce back and forth for a while to the UK because when, you know, there wasn't really any opportunities coming up that, you know, were interesting over here, I then was able to go home to England and do some great work for the BBC that I thought was really exciting. And then I would come back over here and do something. And, you know, I would kind of divide my time a bit until I realized that that was no way to live. And I was never mm -hmm. going to have any kind of relationships or quality of life if I was like trying to be <laughs> by continent. So then I decided that I would stay in LA and about five months after that or something, that's when the uh, offer to shoot Legion came along. That's pretty amazing. And you shot for uh, one of the people who I was excited to start this podcast. Ilya and I had talked about like maybe we, one day we can get like we had a list of people. And one of the ones that was highest on my list was Ellen Curis. And you shot for her. We actually had her on the show a couple of years ago. I always wonder what it's like shooting for someone who is themselves such an accomplished cinematographer. Was she saying, well, I wouldn't do it that way? Or was she, or was she like giving you all of the freedom to, to do your job the way that she probably would want it, you know, were she the the DP and someone else were directing. I mean, I absolutely loved working with Ellen. I mean, I was starstruck when I first met her. You know, I couldn't quite believe Me that too. I was going to shoot for her. It was, it was quite intimidating. But she was just an absolute joy. You know, even in prep, we had the best prep process. We had a really complicated episode to shoot together. Um, and we really spent a lot of time together trying to figure it out. And then we were on set. She was such an amazing director with the actors. She was so into the performance that she really just trusted me to do my job and um, you know sometimes we would just discuss things and she might give me an idea but she just really was sort of so focused on the actors and everything that I just kind of got on with with my job and so it was really a great working relationship and I would love to do it again. And, and I mean Legion is an extremely stylized show but I feel like a lot of the TV work you've done has been stuff that kind of deals with a great deal of stylization. Call the Midwife, which is all a period piece, and also Strange Angel, which is, I've been a fan of that story, the Jack Parsons story, so when I heard they were making a show out of it, I was glued to that. What is it about the stylization that appeals to you, or is it, you know, I mean, in some cases, it's just like you kind of arrive in places in your career just because like, oh, I, I, I'm kind of good at that, and then that gets you the next thing, the next thing, or are you excited about doing things that are highly stylized like that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because for the longest time I wasn't into stylized things at all. I was really more into the stories that I was telling that I felt that my work could really help 
amplify the emotion, you know, and the character's sort of emotional state in their journey. You know, I wanted to do sort of poetic work and really, you know, just focus mm. on drama and, um, you know, use lighting and, and camera to really just amplify what the characters were going through. And when I first got sent Legion, I mean, I had, I had watched the first season and I had loved it. Um, and I think the exciting thing about it was it was so sort of heady and it was all about visual storytelling. And when I met for it, the producers were so excited about, you know, the camera being such an important role in, in the show and um, that they liked to do a lot of stuff in camera and they didn't want to rely heavily on VFX. And it was really sort of the camera language, which, you know, was used to kind of really build this world out because it was such a weird and, and wonderful place. Um, so that's what really excited me. And I think, you know, as I go forth in my career, I think it's not only the scripts or the, you know, the, the stylization of the material or even the material itself. It's, it's also the people that are, are working on it. And I think, you know, as I'm able to work with different directors, you know, it's sort of sort of figuring out, do I want to tell this story and, and who's this director that I'm, I'm going to work with? Mm. But I've, I've always been sort of not a big fan of stylization really you know like you say on a quiet place like I'm much more into sort of motivating everything from a more sort of base place of what's the raw emotion and how do we motivate everything from the natural world more than just making it kind of contrived or heavily stylized but you know Legion was just it was kind of like a, a different thing for me that I'd not done before and was mm -hmm. one of the the most exciting and wonderful experiences that I've ever had because the people that made it just cared so much and, and we were all trusted by the people at the top to sort of, you know, really do whatever we wanted to in, in order to bring the words to life. I want to ask you about one project also that, that, that you did that I, I don't see a lot of documentary on your resume, but you made one film that blew my mind and that was Holy Hell. And it's a gorgeous film, but I uh, I wanted, and a lot of it also is obviously relying on uh, ar archival footage and stuff of this weird ass cult. Honestly, anything with with a cult at the center of it, I'm definitely gonna check it out. But I, I thought it was just it was one that I'd never heard of and really just brilliantly told. How does your approach to documentary, like I, I'm always interested when people shoot documentary and narrative, how one approach informs the other if that makes sense or or is it like a totally different job and you do it very differently I'm most i'm curious like what your approach is in the documentary form yeah i mean you know it's interesting because i'm terrified of making documentaries you know holy hell was it was very specific because will allen the director had you know like you said he'd spent probably 25 years of his life in this cult and he joined the cult right out of film school and so he was the guy that was responsible for like making films and, and sort of recording everybody's experiences. And he had such a wonderful library of, of stock footage um, and stuff that he had shot over that 25 years. So, you know, for, for him, it was really, you know, we just wanted to go around and, and visit all of his friends that he shared the experience with and, you know, um, interview them um, and film them talking about their life and, and how um, being in the Buddha field kind of impacted them. I have worked on other documentaries before. I've, I've never sort of done a full one, but ones where, you know, it's, it's documentary more in a traditional sense in that you're just following people um, and recording um, moments in their life. And I have found that to be very challenging. I think, you know, mm. 
I, I would love to do more because I think, you know, it's exciting to be challenged, just like it was exciting to go onto a quiet place where there was all these things that I needed to do that I'd never done before. So try to work out how to pull things off that you just, you know, haven't seen or, or achieved in the past. But, you know, it's definitely a very admirable skill set to be able to tell a story with a camera where it's just the action is happening for real and you have to learn how to tell that story just with the shots that you choose and, and how to cover a real life event in a way that, you know, then be edited together and create a scene. And so I hope to do more, but it does, it, it terrifies me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I feel like we are out of time here. I could talk to you about a lot more of your projects, but maybe we'll we'll, we'll come back when you have uh, your next big thing to talk about. Thank you so much. Before we go, is there a place that people can find your work online? Do you have a website, Instagram, any any place where people can see your stuff? Yeah. So my website is just Polly Morgan, but it's .net. Uh, not .com because polymorgan.com is uh, she's a famous taxidermist who lives in Scotland oh. so uh, don't think that I stuff animals in my spare time because um, <laughs> people often ask me they're like oh you're, you're also a taxidermist and I'm like if only I had the time to have two careers if we had more time I would explain to you my woes of trying to get benrock.com because it's a boat company anyway go on <laughs> I know, I was like, how can there be another Polly Morgan? But of course, there's probably hundreds of Polly Morgans out there. <laughs> Your name literally means many. <laughs> I know, exactly. And then uh, my Instagram is just, again, it's just Polly Morgan. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, for everybody listening to this, uh, definitely check out Quiet Place Part 2. It's it's really amazing. It looks amazing. And I, I think it's going to be a, a pretty big movie. I think a lot of people are going to see it because we're all coming back to theaters now. And it's probably the, the biggest thing that's going to be in theaters as we're all coming back. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So that was Polly Morgan. Thank you again, Polly, for coming on the show. Everybody go check out A Quiet Place too if you haven't already. It's a really amazing piece of work. And now, short ends. So, Ben, we've reached the short end time of the show. Do you have an obsession this week? Is there something that uh, you're all about? Yeah, yeah. It's not really log rolling for myself, but very slightly. I know I've talked about this book on the show before, which is Directing Actors by Judith Weston. It was a book that completely changed my life. And I read it uh, right when it came out, really. I didn't realize it had just come out, but I read it when it came out about 25 years ago. And Judy has done a new edition of the book and it is now available uh, and you can get it in audio form if you are an audible subscriber and uh, you can get it in paperback and the reason that it's mildly log rolling is that judy reached out to me uh because she had some questions about alien the you know ridley scott's alien and asked me if i would watch as a favor to her if i would watch alien and give her some insights about a specific chapter that she was writing uh, in which she was using alien as an example of something. And so I really, I, I took it on the chin, man. It, I, it wasn't easy. It was, it was kind of, it was painful for me to watch, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the sarcasm is thick yeah. with you here. <laughs> so uh, Alicia and I, we just we just pulled up, we hiked up our pants, and we just sat down and just you know gritted our teeth all the way through one of our favorite movies. And so I got a, a special thanks in the book, and she actually sent me an autographed copy as well. But uh, Judy is amazing. Uh, when I first moved to L.A. after having read her book, I uh, I took her classes. She had a, a class that she used to do called Acting for Directors, where she forced directors to actually perform like actors 
which is not something that comes naturally to me, but it's a really good experience. And I think it's important, I think, for directors to know what actors are going through, at least. And then she had an actor-director laboratory that I took several times. And I also directed uh, a production of Lone Star, which is like a, a well-known comedy from, I believe, the 70s at her studio. And she did a, a night where there's Lone Star and then there's another show that goes with it called Laundry and Bourbon. And I did Lone Star and another another crew did Laundry and Bourbon. But it was... Uh, She's just one of the most influential people in my life. She's an amazing writer. And I think anyone anyone who wants to be a director or a DP, I think should at least be aware of this book and, and read it. I think the techniques and stuff that are in it are extremely valuable to anyone who who wants to be at the helm creatively of a film and you'd say why a dp but i think that dps also need to know what actors are going through and i think that i think it's very helpful when dps can have some uh, respect for acting as uta hagen might say yes you know absolutely alfred hitchcock uh, famously compared actors to cattle and and that's really not fair and as much as the actors get um, elevated and put on uh, pedestals in our you know society and our, our basically there are royalty there are our, our royal well, the family here in the stars country, but are but actors stars are. but in but, order to, yes. to become a star how <laughs> you, much you, how you, many you, shit sandwiches does every actor have to eat you know, like you it's, it's got not there easy. before I could get there because okay. there's a huge difference between being a an actor, a working actor, a character actor, and huge star. But I think when most people think about actors, they think about you know the, the household names. But but really, uh, acting is tough, tough work. And to get to that point, you know, there's there's literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of people competing for for some of these roles, especially when they do these large open cattle call sorts of yeah. uh, sorts of things. And to be really good at your craft takes work. You can't just phone it in. You got to be good. You got to put it put in the time and effort. And that is uh, that's that's incredibly difficult and deserves everyone's respect and that's why i actually think it's wonderful even if someone has got a very small part in a movie when it comes to their final day on set when everyone you know will cheer and applaud when that's a wrap on on them when they're yeah. when they've finished their last scene there's a little bit of respect from all of the crew because frankly if the actors can't get it done there's no reason for anyone else to be there <laughs> yeah well yeah and you know the old saying there are no small parts only small actors that's right but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and Judy's book isn't really about the the business of acting, but it's mostly about how to approach working with actors. And I think beyond just actors, Judy's book opened my mind to the idea of collaboration in general, because you, you don't hire an actor because they look like the character. You don't hire an actor because they are performing in the way that you imagined they were going to perform in the role. You hire them because they're an artist. And they're going to interpret it and they're going to take it to a level, hopefully, that you didn't expect, but is better than what you thought. And her book, I think, is kind of focused on that. But I have to say that coming out of film school, and this is not an indictment of my film school, but I think that I had that thought about virtually everyone that you would collaborate with. So I always thought, you know, for the DP that you would, you know, tell them what the shots were and they would light them and make them look good. And when you're being an autocrat and telling someone how to do it, yeah, I mean, there and there are definitely directors and DPs who work that way. But I, I think that it's a much better experience when you have when a director and a DP have mutual respect for each other. So the director comes in with an idea and maybe the DP proposes a different way to do the scene and they trust each other well enough so that the best idea wins. And that's what makes great films. It's not a director masterminding an entire, 
movie in their head completely cut off from everyone else they're the films that you love are great because everyone who worked on them was collaborating well i would think maybe not all i, of I them. think you're i think you're right well there, there's famously been some movies that uh people love beloved things that uh people famously didn't get along with but you know uh i i would hope that more often than not people are getting along because life's it, too I, don't, short. I mean, I don't even give a crap if people get along. It's just that they collaborate. That if you're working, and I mean, like, and I, I when well, we interviewed, Walt I think Lloyd, that's what I mean by. I, th- I think that's the point though with collaboration is that you're all getting along. There are yeah. people who just show up, and ostensibly they are not going to collaborate. They're not going to listen yeah. to what anyone says. They're going to do it their way, and they're going to go home, and that's it. And when when that happens, I think you end up with a worse product than than a better product. But certainly, uh, you know, this industry has been known to accommodate people who have just decided that they're not going to be a collaborator. They're not going to get along. They are just going to do their thing and you know punch the clock. That's uh, the, yeah. the worst. I, I just feel like when you when you do that, when you're that person, you better be the goods. You better be the the top of the top. You better be James Cameron if you're going to be that way. Because if you're not, the city cannot wait to take you down. Like you know, people <laughs> yes. people people will cheer your your downfall. And we've all seen it happen when somebody who who is puffed up and walked all over people failed. whenever that happens everyone's excited but anyway we've gone far field of judith weston's amazing book check it out directing actors 25th anniversary edition there's a ton of new stuff in it and i think anyone who even works with actors should read it awesome and Ilya, what is your short end today i've actually been thinking a lot about this because i typically don't like to contribute to the rumor mill i don't like to contribute oh, no. to stuff that's not that's not uh known and set in stone but wait are you are you talking about benefer no not talking about benefer in fact i'm <sighs> talking about technology i'm talking about panasonic has a new camera coming out called the gh6 it is the latest mm-hmm. version of the camera which frankly is responsible for for launching my company the the gh1 all the way back in 2009 so uh the gh6 they haven't given full details. They haven't released all the specs for it yet. But in order for a camera to have the GH moniker on it, it is the flagship camera of a particular set of specs that Panasonic is releasing. And since the GH4 in particular, each version has been revolutionary for people who shoot motion. Now, there's a lot of people out there who immediately go, ah, you know, bigger sensor is better. I just need the biggest sensor I can. But Panasonic proves over and over again that bigger does not necessarily equal better. And in fact, sometimes a little smaller than what people are used to can deliver incredible, if not like groundbreaking results. They were the first people to have a 4K camera, GH4. They were the first people to have a 10-bit 422 internal body recording standard. Now now we take it for granted because so many cameras have this, uh, have these features, but they're the first people to do these things. And the fact that the GH6, now they say, is coming in December, it's really going to come in December. They've announced it's going to be $2,500, which is about $1,000, sort of yes, less than the current flagship mirrorless cameras out there that people are using every day for uh, for production. It's going to be really interesting to see what they come out with, because uh, I have no doubt, and I actually don't know all the, all the specifications, I think that it's going to be groundbreaking in a couple of different ways. And uh, for me to, to guess right now, it's conjecture. I, I, I truly don't know. But it's probably going to be monumental. And I, 
I'm sure that the other companies are going to have to play catch up after whatever Panasonic releases because they're known for this now. And this is pretty exciting. Twenty five hundred bucks. You're going to get, I'm sure, a world class motion capable 4K plus camera. Uh, I mean, I, I can't wait to see what it's going to be. Still micro four thirds. Of course. And let me tell you, if you're doing lots of different types of production, that's an advantage, not a, a detriment. And really, the, the fact of the matter is, is that your focal length and your position matter a heck of a lot more to your apparent depth of field than that sensor size. That's really a, those that sensor size is only one element of it. And we actually have a wonderful video that's going to be coming out in the near future where we explain what makes a lens different on different formats? And and I think that uh, there, there's a more eloquent way to say it, but uh, I'll save it to when it's ready. It, it won't be too long now. I look forward to watching that, although I already principally disagree, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. You, you've been wrong before. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong about Dogecoin, and we bring it all back around. So, Ilya, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras or some of the other social medias. There's not too many Ilya Friedmans out there, so if you search, you, you'll you'll get me. There I am. And uh, yeah, reach out. Say something. Uh, I know we didn't do any listener mail this time, but we got a whole bunch of like uh, ones to read next time. And if you've got something you want to say to us, if you think we're full of shit or we got something wrong or you know you you want to add your two cents, reach out. Let us know. We'll you know we'll we'll get you in here. I love being full of shit. Um, you can find me at uh, benrockonline.com. And uh, unlike you, there actually are several Ben Rocks, believe it or not. I, I befriended a Ben Rock it. on Twitter. He's, he's, uh, he lives up in uh, Washington State, and he's a, a dungeon master for, for D&D players. And he's a really cool guy. Anyway, and his name is Ben Rock, and we're friends on, on Facebook now, too. Anyway, Ilya, who do we need to thank today, unlike every other day? Okay, well, let's... Wow, unlike every other day? Jeez, that that's tough. Yeah, let's uh, let's thank some new people. Mm, okay. Uh Anthony Fauci? Who do you want to thank? <laughs> I'll thank Anthony Fauci for yeah. uh for making me uh not not have more coronavirus than I already had. <laughs> um let's go ahead and thank Ben Katz, who uh, we have not made it easy for today because we were all over the place. Thank you, Ben Katz, for editing us and making us not sound like dopes. Yes, thanks, thanks for doing your best this time. Uh, let's thank uh, Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's uh, made the music, all the music you heard in this episode, and he's probably not listening to a word we're saying. More than likely not. I don't, I don't think he is. And uh, lastly, but not leastly, let's thank our amazing, intrepid producer, Alana Cody, who uh, is kicking all the ass and getting us some amazing interviews, including today's Polly Morgan. And we have some amazing ones coming up, one, one or two that we've already recorded, one or two that we're about to record. You listeners, if you're still listening to the sounds of our voices here at the, the very, very end of this, this show, uh, just know that you got great stuff to look forward to. Cool. Well, that is it, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.